What a beautiful song to uh, start this sermon today because I think that if you would have gone back to those days with the uh, early Anabaptists, they definitely would have cried that out, that they do not live in fear. And they were children of God, and therefore they were 100% confident in um, knowing that His grace and that His protection and His peace and His provisions would be enough for them during the time of persecution that they would experience. Today we want to look at um, the topic again, Anabaptists, and we're going to look at uh, radical discipleship and what that means. And so last week I ended the sermon with a quote from Stuart Murray's book, The Naked Anabaptist, and so I figured it would be only fitting if we would start this sermon with a quote from him. Murray says this, The Christendom era has bequenched a form of Christianity that has marginalized, spiritualized, domesticated, and emasculated Jesus. The teaching of Jesus is watered down, privatized, and explained away. Jesus is worshipped as a remotely kingly figure or a romanticized personal savior. And many churches, especially those emerging from the Reformation, Paul's writings are prioritized over the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And in many Christian traditions, ethical guidelines derived from the Old Testament or pagan philosophy trump Jesus' call to discipleship. That is a strong statement, but I believe, again, a very accurate one. You'll need to forgive me today. Like last week, I will be stuck in my notes because if I rabbit trail, we will be here too long. Now, I mentioned to you last week, and we'll keep um, holding this before us, that the Anabaptists, their desire was to line their life up with Jesus, to live in such a way that they would be a reflection of what Jesus taught and how he lived. You were encouraged last week, at the end, to go home and to wrestle with the question of whether or how closely you felt you reflected or lived up to Jesus. Are you a reflection of him? For the Anabaptists, Jesus was not doctrine to be debated. Jesus wasn't a theology or theological position to uphold. At the heart of all things, they would consider first and foremost how Jesus lived. And if at any time there may have been some discretion on what to do in a certain way, they would have first wanted to model the life of Jesus than just focus on doctrine and theology. This is important for us. This was especially evident in the area of discipleship. Now this word needs a little explanation because discipleship is a word that is tossed around a lot in church. And I would say that it has lost much of its meaning, influence, and even relevance today. It has been reduced often to nothing more than some teaching in a class. If we teach a class, we have discipled. It's this idea of passing on information. And while it is important to teach, and while it is important to learn, 
the Anabaptists saw discipleship as a lifestyle. If you'd asked an early Anabaptist to define what it means to disciple or discipleship, a word that would have been heard almost immediately is the word suffering. The Anabaptist churches were suffering churches, especially in the early years. Now this has been greatly distorted by our, many of us here today, Mennonites, to mean something it was never meant to mean. Now suffering is to mean to live without, or to endure hardship that reflect more a culture and a tradition than actually suffering for Jesus. I know this because I grew up an old colony boy in Belize and in Bolivia, and I can tell you that much of the suffering that we experienced there was not because we were proclaiming Jesus, it was because we were following unnecessary rules and traditions. And yet this is what it has now become. That's not what the Anabaptists meant. The Anabaptists would not have used words like discipleship even. They would have used the word nachfalia. What is nachfalia? Now if you speak Plotich, you would say nufalia. Nachfalia, what is that? It's a German word meaning follow or succession. The act or the process of following and taking the place of someone. Jesus called us to be nachfalia. Consider the words of Jesus in Matthew and how we understand those words today. We've heard these words many times. Matthew 16, 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, to you and I, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up their cross and follow me. And whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory and His angels, and, they will and He will reward each person according to what they have done. We've heard these words many times. And there are other words that Jesus says that speak to this theme of giving up everything. First shall be last and last shall be first. This theme is prevalent in the Gospels. And yet, many of us skip over it today. The Anabaptists, their aim was to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And this was to be done in a simple and unsophisticated manner, without theological speculation and foundation. And that is why it can sometimes be difficult to find a clear statement on certain topics from, from the early Anabaptists. They did not have the luxury of spending time writing doctrinal statements. They were focused on living out how Jesus would expect them to live. Now while they would have been familiar with the Apostles' Creed, and certainly were orthodox, their concern lay elsewhere. And this is why they've often been described as theologically naive. 
But I would suggest that such a statement is itself naive. I would argue that their early movement of the Anabaptists was tremendously theologically sound. They were not naively dying for something they didn't understand. The Anabaptists clearly understood what it meant to follow Jesus and gave their lives for it. And while these foundations of their faith were not expressed in a systematic theology sort of way, it is easy to see them implied in how the Anabaptists lived and how they witnessed for Jesus. The Anabaptists held, and you need to know this, they held to this two doctrine, or doctrine of the two worlds, sorry, the doctrine of the two worlds, or the doctrine of the two kingdoms. And we've talked about this already last week a little bit. They had this idea, they understood that there's the, the world on earth, and then there's the kingdom of the earth, and then there's the kingdom of Jesus. This peaceful kingdom of Jesus. And therefore, they believed wholeheartedly that they were to live in the kingdom of Jesus. And therefore, they were not concerned about advancing the earthly kingdom. Earthly rights were not something they concerned themselves. This idea that they would fight for our God-given rights is something you would have never heard an Anabaptist mutter. That is the language of Christendom, something they greatly opposed. This kingdom implied a new set of values and opposed Christendom in every way. Listen to Guy, I'm going to butcher his name, Hirschberger. I wish, Mom and Dad, that was our last name. In his book, The Recovery of the Anabaptist Vision, he says this, The Sermon on the Mount is the best illustration. Love, forgiveness, self-surrender, hating not even one's own persecutors. These values are so radically different that they seem paradoxical and unrealizable to the ungenerated mind. Certainly they are far beyond mere ethics. What Guy is saying here is that you cannot understand this kind of thinking without having our lives changed by Christ. These values are far more than, are far removed from that early Catholic church at that time. These values are only understood and truly embraced through the rebirth and a radical change of mind and heart. And that, of course, is only done through the work of the Holy Spirit. I want to read to you a confession from a man named Andres Keller. Keller wrote this in 1536. This is a guy now basically journaling to people what he's experiencing. Listen to how he describes his life. I am distressed, he says, beyond all misery. I am poverty-stricken and robbed of my ability to work, all of which I cannot overcome in my lifetime. I have been starved so that I cannot now eat or drink, and my body is broken. How would you like to live for five weeks with only boiled water and unflavored bread soup? 
I have been lying in the darkness on straws. All this would not be possible if God had not given me equal measure of His love. I marvel that I have not become confused or even mad. I would have frozen if God had not strengthened me. For you can well imagine how little a bit of hot water will warm one. In addition to this, I have suffered great torture twice from the executioner who has ruined my hands. Unless the Lord heals them, I have had enough of it to the ends of my day. Therefore, my dear friends, you will find in me nothing but patience in the word in word and deed. I will obey till I die, and I will obey God till I die. See the tension here. But I will not build on this command of men, which is against God, as long as there is breath in me. I will not be a hypocrite, either to curry favor or to avoid suffering, but I will seek the truth in all my heart. It is impossible for us to understand, sitting here in our comfort, how severe the suffering was. We could share many stories like Keller's. So many suffered like him. And here's what's important. Keller was an ordinary man. He was not a key influencer in the Anabaptist movement, and yet he endured physical and emotional pain and suffering that many of us could never even imagine. But this is where it gets interesting. The reason I share Keller's story with you today is because many believe that he recanted at the end. Some suggest, like I said, that he did. Many would argue that he did not. You can see not all those who suffered in those days were able to withstand it. Keller made it clear that he would obey, but he also said he would obey God. He preferred, obviously, not to suffer. And I think we can all remember someone who also preferred not to suffer. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed for the suffering to be removed, if possible, in Luke chapter 22, verse 42. See, this topic of recanting created attention for the Anabaptists. What do you do with someone who has recanted? What do you do with someone who has been tortured and tortured and finally they simply say, I cannot handle the pain anymore and I renounce Jesus. And then they're let go. And now they're sorry that they recanted and now they come back to the church and they want to be back in. The church struggled with this. I think it's a picture of Jesus with Peter, when Peter walked on the water and he sunk and he failed and he's in the boat now with all these dry disciples and there's Peter soaking wet. Everyone knew that he failed. And the early Anabaptist church had to struggle through this tension of what do we do with those who could not endure the suffering. Now it's easy for us to sit in here with our heat on, our comfortable clothes on, food in our bellies, knowing what we will do for the rest of the day to cast judgment on someone like Keller. And I believe we need to be very careful. 
But for the Anabaptists, this was a reality. This was something, not only were they physically persecuted, but they also had to deal with the tension within their own membership. What do we do with those who were not able to withstand? And however, I believe that all of the Anabaptists understood that suffering was part. To be a disciple of Jesus, suffering was what you would see in a Jesus follower. The early Anabaptists actually accepted a theology of martyrdom. An understanding that citizens of Christ's kingdom will meet suffering in this world. They accepted the idea of suffering church in almost almost in a matter-of-fact kind of a way. And every member understood what it meant without much explanation. They all would have known someone who had died for their faith. And they saw it as a privilege to suffer for Christ, similar to John and Peter in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Martyrdom was seen, though through an eschatological outlook. They viewed life as temporary. And therefore, to suffer for Jesus was short-term experience. Because they knew that they would then be with Jesus forever. Either way, they understood Jesus would return at any time. And therefore, remaining faithful to Him was of utmost importance. The Anabaptists did not spend a lot of time debating and calculating when Jesus was going to return. They were not concerned about those things. They were mindful of the words of Jesus Himself who said, not even the Son of Man knows the day or the hour. And therefore, they did not spend much time discussing when Jesus would return. Rather, they focused on faithfully following Jesus while they had time. And they fully expected that they would be persecuted and that they would die. And that is exactly what happened. Between 1525 and 1618, it is estimated that 1,200 to 1,500 Anabaptists were were executed in southern Europe alone. In countries like Switzerland, South Germany, and Austria. And if you know your geography, that is not a large space up to 1,500 executed. The Catholic and the Protestants saw the Anabaptist movement as a perverted sect made up of eccentric, stubborn heretics who were worthy of death. I want you to listen to some of the key Reformation influencers of that time and what their view was of the Anabaptists. And see if you can guess these. I'm sure you... You won't be able to, but let's just see if you would have suspected that this would have been who would have said that. First one, we'll keep the name hidden for now. It says this, These miserable fanatics have no other goal than to put everything into disorder. They reveal themselves to be enemies of God and of the human race. Now, who would have said such a thing? None other than John Calvin. All the Calvinists are quiet. Here's another one. My struggle with the old church, Catholicism, was child's play compared to my struggle with the Anabaptists. Now this is an important person because 
of the role that they played in the beginning of the Anabaptist movement. This was said by Ulrich Swingwe. Remember? He was a teacher of Grable, um, Mons, and Blarock. This is the guy who taught these students, and now he's like miserable people. Listen to the last one. For think what disaster would ensure, ensue if children were not baptized. Besides this, the Anabaptists separate themselves from the churches, the Catholic churches. We conclude that the stubborn must be put to death. No mercy. From a fellow Christian who started the revolution, his name, Martin Luther. See, we're not all good people. And if you had taken the course, Jake Enns has done a fantastic job pointing out that even our beloved Mennonites didn't always get it right. And yet these three men played a significant role. But after a while, there were some things that we, they were not willing to let go of. And the structure of the church was one of them. And eventually, if you went against the structure of the church and the state... They ended up at a place saying they must die. Now I want you to listen to the Anabaptists. Their view of themselves and how they viewed suffering. Conrad Grable. He says, do not worry about the authorities. I love this. Just do what God has told you to do. Now there's a philosophy with which we can live. Just do what God told you to do. Grief. Get on with it. You know, what are you worried about? We looked at this guy last week, Michael Settler. They threatened us with bonds, then with fire and the sword. But all this I surrender myself completely into the will of, God, of the Lord, together with all my brothers and with my wife, and prepare myself to die for his testimony. And we know that that is exactly what he and his wife did. Hans van Overdam. He said this, we would, rather, we would rather suffer our bodies to be burned, drowned, racked, or tortured. Whatever you may wish to do with them. And we would rather be whipped, banished, or driven away, or robbed of our goods than show any disobedience contrary to the Word of God. How many of us would make that claim today. We've looked at a number of quotes from men. So it's only fair to ask, what about the women? Right, ladies, you want to hear? You want interested in the women at all? Okay, two of you, great. I wrote two pages on it, I'm going to go through it. Last week I told you about Margaret Margarita Settler, um, Michael Settler's wife, and how she was drowned. So there's one example of a woman who was persecuted and killed for her faith. According to the book, Through Fire and Water, by Harvey Lowen and Stephen Knott, Anabaptist, worked, Anabaptist women worked side by side with men in proclaiming the gospel. You ready to get a little uncomfortable? Good. 
baptizing new believers and teaching congregations the way of Christian discipleship. Women did this. Listen to Myron Osberger. The concept of priesthood of believers among the Anabaptists elevated women to a role of partnership in the congregation of believers. In the state churches, Catholic and Protestant, the attitude towards women was as yet quite medieval and remained so for many years. However, in the Anabaptist churches, Anabaptist circles, women were referred to as sisters and were held in high respect. And sadly, in many churches, we have gone back to medieval ways. Anabaptists believed, not all, because like I said, there was no one statement, but Anabaptists believed that women received the same call to salvation baptism, and discipleship that men did. Therefore, some Anabaptist women also had leadership roles in the church, and many were imprisoned, tortured, and killed for their faith. The nature of the Anabaptist community involved economic sharing and recognizing the prophetic gifts of all people, not only just ordained leaders. All people, including women, were involved in Bible study, and spiritual discernment. In fact, because women lived in association so freely with the men in the work of the church, the Anabaptists were often slanderously accused by their opponents, those outside of the church, for having women in common. According to Martyrs Mirror, one-third of all Anabaptist martyrs were women. Many of these were married and mothers. And yet they did not, this did not prevent them from working as missionaries or church leaders. And they accepted the punishment that the other Anabaptist leaders received. In southern Germany, in Austria, especially in the um, Tyrol region, about 40% of Anabaptist martyrs between 1527 and 29 were women, 40%. Anabaptist women played a significant role in the church and they suffered dearly, just as the men did. Initially, women were drowned. It seemed to be a little bit more humane. They would actually mock them and say, oh, you want to be baptized? Well, we'll baptize you. And they would hold them under until they passed away. But after a while, they were burned at the stake just like the men. As I mentioned to you, the Anabaptists, they looked to Jesus. And one of the things they would have had to wrestle with was, how did Jesus treat women? So let's get a little uncomfortable. How did Jesus treat women? Well, let me tell you of one experience. When Jesus rose from the dead, after he rose, he had the ability to appear wherever he chose to appear. Where did he choose to appear? Not to the men in hiding. And he didn't say, go to the men and say to them, now go tell the women. Where did Jesus appear? To the women. And more than that, what did he do? Go teach the men that I've risen. 
That's according to Matthew chapter 28, verse 9 and 10. Now here's another thing that's important for us to understand. This is especially crazy. What Jesus did there is especially crazy considering the context at that time. A woman's testimony was considered non-reliable. You didn't, you didn't believe when a woman made a testimony. They were not allowed to give testimony. Now Jesus then has clearly taught his male disciples that when a woman testifies about him, it needed to be trusted. Why is that? Because you know that these men jumped up and ran to the tomb. They believe these women. Amen. I want to just say this. That's a complicated topic, but I am so proud that our early Anabaptists applied the teaching of Jesus even when it came to recognizing the calling of women into ministry. All Anabaptists. See how comfortable it gets? All Anabaptists understood this, though. Back to our original topic. That to be a follower of Jesus meant to be willing to suffer for Him. This was at the heart of their commitment to Christ. I want to read to you the words of Hans Hafner. He is writing this from a castle dungeon in Bavaria in the 1530s. I would love for you to find this, and if you want, it's on your app. Copy it, because I believe that this is a statement we should all consider applying to our lives. He says this. Now let us hear what true surrender is. It is to let go of all things for God's sake and to turn to God so that He may lead us. Jesus Christ called it hatred. He who, who, he's quoting Jesus, He who does not hate his father and mother and recognize everything he has is not worthy of me. He goes on, he says, True surrender is to put to death the flesh and to be born another time. The whole world wanted to have Christ, but they pass Him by. They do not find Him because they want to have Him only as a gift, only as a giver of grace and a mediator, which He certainly is. But they do not want to have Him in a suffering way. The same Christ who says, all who are heavy laden come to me and I will refresh you also says, whoever will not forsake father and mother cannot be my disciple. Whoever loves truth must accept the one as well as the other. Whoever wants to have Christ must have him also in the way of suffering. It is foolish to say, we believe that Christ has redeemed us, but we do not want to live like he lived. What a powerful statement. Last week, I ended by sharing a story with you about Dirk Willems. So this week, I want to wrap up by sharing a story of a woman. I'm going to butcher her name. Annika Hendricks. I don't know if that's where Hendricks got his name from, but. She was betrayed 
by her neighbors and reported to the authorities who arrested her. She boldly confessed her faith to Jesus in Jesus and on October 25, 1517, she was severely tortured for her faith. They tortured her to get names of fellow believers out of her, but she did not give them anything. She was charged with heresy. Here's why. She had forsaken the mother church, not giving confession for six years, and for adopting the doctrine of the Mennonist, which is early for Mennonites, by whom they had been, she had been baptized upon her faith and for having married a husband at night according to the tradition of the Mennonists. So they tied her to a ladder, and once more they tried to get her to recant. And they brought in a priest who threatened her with eternal hell if she did not recant. But she remained steadfast. Her final words were this. Though I am sentenced and condemned by you, yet what you say does not come from God. For I firmly trust in God, who shall help me out of my distress and deliver me, deliver me out of all trouble. After this, they no longer allowed her to speak. In fact, just to be extra cruel, they filled her mouth with gunpowder. They carried her out of the city and they threw her into a fire. She was executed on November 10th, 1571. So as you know, her anniversary of her death was this Thursday. Suffering for Jesus. Radical discipleship. Was something the Anabaptists understood and something they were willingly willing to do. They were not focused on the freedom of this earth. They were focused on Christ's kingdom and gave their lives in obedience. I want to close today with a hymn. I want you just to listen to it. From George Wagner. And I was going to read it to you in high German, but that would have been a disaster. So translate it. The hymn is he who would follow Christ in life. This was written in 1527. And like all hymns back then, it had an endless number of verses, so we'll just read two with the chorus. It says this. I have to collect myself. He who would follow Christ in life must scorn the world's insults and strife, and bear his cross each day, for this alone leads to the throne. Christ is the only way. The chorus. Christ's servants follow him to death and give their body, life, and breath. On cross and rack and prior, as gold is tried and purified, they stand the test of fire. Renouncing all, 
that chose the cross and claiming it count all as loss in home and wife and, and child, forsaking gain, forgetting pain, they entered into life. Let's pray. God, I want to pray for us as a church that we would look to you, Jesus, more. We would look at how you lived. That we would see it not as information to know, but as a way to mirror something that we should be. God, we hear about the suffering of the church today around the world. There's so many websites that tell us about people who died just today for their faith. And we sit here in such comfort. So God, help us as your church to reflect your love, your grace, and your burden for the broken as we go from this building today. And if we suffer, God, may it not be because of politics or your earthly kingdom or the earthly kingdom. May it be because we are following in your kingdom, Lord, living according to it and building it as you have called us to. Thank you for these people here today and for those watching online. Would you go with us now? In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.